Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. Oh my God, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fuck ears? What the fuck nicks? What the fuckstables? What the fuckaholics? I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. I'm sort of sweaty. I don't know what's going on, man. I don't know what's going on with my ears. But if anyone can identify with the ears humming and popping, uh, you know, sort of a lot and a bit of sinus pressure, I'd like to identify with you. I'd like you to reach out to me and say, yes, I know what that is. This is what I had. See, I will, I will self-diagnose by consensus. I'm not beyond that. All right, so let's move away. Let's move out of my sinuses and into, the, uh, in, into what's at hand, which is uh, today I talked to Leonard Malton. Yeah, the Leonard Malton, the guy with all the books, with the beard, the guy with the movies, with the rating system, the guy that, that is the uh, barometer of uh, the short-form review. We'll talk movies, but more like where, where does he come from? Where's the guy? You know, he's an older guy. What, what made him, man? He is a, a, a movie lover. It was not his, his, uh, his agenda to become Pauline Kale or Andrew Saris. I had a few Cahiers de Cinemas. I had a few of those laying around. My grandma's neighbor was a huge film buff who had just 30 years of film magazines of all kinds. I was sort of fascinated with black and white films when I was very young. I didn't like the movies, but I liked looking at pictures of the actors. I could name most actors in black and white films without having seen the, uh, the movies. And I sort of attach that to my fascination with Hollywood in general, which as time goes on, erodes and fades, my friends. Yes. So, Denver. Denver. Holy shit. Denver. Comedy Works. Denver, Colorado. I'm back. And God damn it. You know, I was not feeling great last week mentally. I've been very on edge. I've been very volatile. Uh, the little things are bothering me. I'm quick to explode. I was just wrought with a, a seething sort of discomfort and aggravation and anger. And by the time I got to Denver on Friday, I was like, why am I even doing this? What's going on? You, you know, and I, the last time I was in Denver, it was just a parade of drunkenness. And uh, I remember that a couple of the late shows were tricky. But here's what I forget. Here's what I forget when I enter. A lot of times uh, when I go out of town, I forget that I'm a fucking professional comic that's been doing this more than half my life and lives on fucking stage and can handle himself anywhere. Would actually prefer it to get fucking weird. Pow, look out. Just shit my pants. Just coffee.coop. Get that at WTFpod.com. Now, there was a little bit of trouble uh, Friday night in between shows. Uh, and also, 
I know some people in Denver got upset with me by t- saying that it's the drunkiest place I've been, you know, other than Glasgow, Scotland. I know some of you took umbrage with that. Uh, but uh, 7.30 show, a woman had to be taken out of the club because she vomited. All right, so that doesn't happen to me. Let me think. Anywhere ever. Denver. 7.30, not even 9 o'clock show. 7.30, a grown person couldn't hold their liquor. I don't know the backstory, but... I'm not making fun of you if I make fun of your town, and I wasn't even making fun of Denver. If you're going to tell me it's not a drunky town, I'm going to tell you you're a liar. I'm going to be in Montreal Thursday through Saturday. I'm doing a solo show up there on Saturday. I'm doing some uh, televised gala. I think I'm doing Ari Shafir's show. I might do one of Attell's midnight shows. That I'm going to be up there at the festival if you're, if you're up and around. So for, what am I talking about? Saturday night. Saturday night, uh, Chris Charpentier is opening for me. First show's great. Everything's timing out. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling like a comic. I'm feeling like a fucking rock star because the comedy works is so hot. What a hot room. And then then it happens. Yeah, then it happens. Uh, they're loading the audience in, and I see some uh, commotion. There's commotion out front. I go out front to get a soda. There's commotion. I'm like, no, 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 it can't be. God, we've come so far. And we've only, we're three shows in, and they're all so good. Why? Why Bachelorettes now? I was almost out four for four. It could have been Bachelorettes. Bride wearing a goofy thing. Not a dick or a veil, but something. I don't remember. There was like 10 of them. And I'm like, oh, fuck no. God damn it. No. Why? Why do they come to the comedy clubs? Why do they come? Who set this tradition rolling? When was it ever okay? Why won't they learn? Oh, my God, I just turned defensive and horrible. And I was like, if they fuck this show up, the problem is, is and I'm like, I'm going to try to do a theater next time because I don't need this shit. I said that out loud to the woman who books the place or within earshot. Because here's my argument is that like, you know, I have fans. They come to see me. I want to do a good show for the fans. I don't want to have to babysit a dozen dumb, buzzed women who want nothing but attention, who don't usually care who the comic is. I don't know who made this a thing. Some comedian in the 80s must have just made an entire show about them in a positive way. And that set this whole ball rolling. It's almost like it's in a book of what to do at a bash for bachelorettes. A fucking bachelorette party. And I was like living. There was like 10 of them. It was huge. And they paid extra to have these certain seats. And the mother is with the mother of the bride is with them. And she's the loudest of them all. And they're sitting and it's before the show. And they're already doing that thing. Like, hey, what do you guys Do you guys want to get a shot? And I was like, bah, bah, bah. Woo! 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 So I'm fucking losing it. But, you know, it is part of the job. You know, I'm a stand up comedian. I can do stand up comedy anywhere. That is what I, I, I that's what I've done with my life. I've prepared. I've played every situation. And I don't know what kind of night they wanted to have, but I could make it a bad one. I could, I'll could. i make it memorable in the worst way possible. So the first guy goes up, and they're already fucking out of control, and then the, the club shuts them down a bit, and they got a guy literally standing over them. And, uh, yeah, it's not the way I wanted it to be, but it was the way it had to be. So he kind of plows through his set. He does all right, and I'm like, what the fuck am I going to this has got to be good. And I'm already like jacked up. And I just got out there and I just eviscerated them. For 10 minutes, I got down on my hands and knees and said some of the most heinous shit possible to preemptively destroy the possibility of these drunk, needy women who care not for the rest of the audience to just feel the wrath of me 
but also give them attention. I was relatively diplomatic. I did get very heinous. I did say some awful things, but I was like, oh, what I meant to say was congratulations. Uh, I did. Uh, it was fun for everybody. It was. It was. And you know what? They behaved themselves. And, and I would engage with them occasionally. And I think my fans had a good time. I had a slight edge on. I had a slight edge on. I, say some, I said some things I, could, I can't take back. But uh, they, uh, they seemed to have a good time. Afterwards, the bride came up to me. She said, that was really fun. And uh, it was exactly what we wanted. And, and I thought like, oh my God, I must be losing my touch. How come she's not crying? I must be losing my edge. Why are they all so perky? And then, uh, and then I said, well, okay, well, I'm glad you had a good time in the club. You know, the, the club doesn't like to kick 10 people out. They need to make money too. And, and then the bride said to me, she said, well, the one thing was they, they did kick my mother out. And I'm like, all right, so it's a win-win for everybody. There's your story. Everyone had a good time. I got to dump about, you know, 15 years of cynicism about marriage onto your lap. And, uh, and your mother got kicked out. I, I think everybody gets a good story and everyone had a good time. And then after the show... The woman who uh, who booked the place says, don't you dare tell me you're going to go do a theater. I'm like, I'm sorry. I didn't know what was going to happen. I was just being a diva. I was being a dick. I was being a, you know, a, a sensitive baby. And, and the honest to God thing about it is I love doing comedy clubs. You know, I know I waffle and I make myself crazy before I go on. But when you have a hands-on situation like that, that kind of pushes you to, to get into a, you know, a hostile mode, which I used to be in all the time, but sometimes now it's sort of a gift. And just to go hands-on and improvise about, you know, 30 minutes of an hour and 15-minute show and just kind of ride it out and make it work and, and ride the wave of hostility and charm and diplomacy and just how, how was that not entertaining? It was one of the best shows. I got I got a partial standing O for that one too. And I'll never do anything but comedy works when I go to Denver because I'm a club comic at heart. And, you know, that's the job, man. Sometimes you gotta deal with a woman with a dick hat on. Even though this one didn't have one. I mean, I'm not happy about it. And if you're, if you're a comic and you're listening to this, I mean, don't get me wrong. We all have the same reaction, which is, oh, fuck. Bachelorettes. God damn it. How am I going to get my work done? Now it's just going to be a war. It's going to be a battle. It's just going to be me representing everything that's bad about men for them. But it worked out. It worked out, folks. Thank you for being concerned. Okay. All right. Let's, let's talk movies and let's find out who Leonard Malton is. Let's let's get into Leonard Malton because he's really just he's almost like a I don't know how many dimensions Leonard Malton has for you, but now it's not just going to be on the screen. Now we're going to make him three dimensional. That's my hope. And I believe I did that. So let's talk to Leonard. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or 
or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Malton. Leonard Malton, you are infamous now. In in the world of podcasting, you've been made a legend by uh, by my uh, my comrade Doug Benson. Yes, who did he invent that game? He invented that game and has made me cool. Yeah. He's given me street cred that I never had before. Uh, finally, <laughs> yeah, you're you're waiting you live, for that your you whole live life. Long, you live long enough, Mark. Yeah, anything's possible. <laughs> you got anything's lucky. Anything's possible. I got damn lucky. But you know, people love that game. Oh, they and, do. Uh, people come up to me all the time who don't know me from any other form of uh, isn't that uh, something of, of uh, communication, but they love Doug's podcast and they love that game. That's hilarious. I I don't feel that I'm very good at it, but I did have a miraculous poll. Uh, on uh, you know naming, I, it was it was actually the movie was The Wizard of Oz, but mm-hmm. I I had to name the top three build names, right? And it came down to you know was it going to be was it going to be uh, the the was it going to be Bert Lar, right? Or was it going to be uh, who played the Tim and Haley, uh, Jack Haley? Jack Haley. Right. And you know I I went with Bert Lar as the third, you know, and I and I got it, and it was wow. is astounding. Nobody, <laughs> I mean that wouldn't be a poll for you. But, you well, know, for- no, no, I don't know. This. I'm the world's worst player of that game. Oh, boy. Don't ask anybody, including Doug. I am the world's worst player of that game. My mind doesn't sort information that way. Yeah, because you wrote this stuff down from research. Yeah. It's not like you wrote the books from your memory. Yeah, exactly. And now we live in the age of Google where you got to look things up. Yeah, that's you know? all. Or, I mean, you could actually go back to my book yeah. if you, you know, are yeah. old-fashioned enough to want to do right. that. Why think at all when you have the Google? That's right, exactly. But what interests me really is that, uh, you, you know, I studied, I minored in film criticism you know, in 1981. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was a period in my life where, uh, you know, and growing up, my my grandmother's next door neighbor in New Jersey, Pompton Lakes, New Jersey. Where are you from? You're from Jersey, right? Uh, North Jersey, Teaneck. Uh-huh. Well, well, born in Manhattan. Yeah, lived there till I was four. Yeah, what where what do you come from exactly? First immigrant, first generation, no, 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 second, second, second generation. Uh huh. Yeah, and what very was, assimilated parents. Uh huh. And where where did you where did they live in Manhattan? On the Upper West Side, on West Seventy Seventh Street, and then when my wife and I got married, we moved to two blocks away from on where purpose? I had grown up on Seventy Ninth and Amsterdam. Really, on purpose? You knew it? No, not on purpose. I I did know it. Yeah. But it was just, I liked the Upper West Side, and, and there was this new building that had just gone up, uh-huh. and uh, my wife and I were you know out of, uh, apartment hunting, and here was this wonderful building, great location, yeah. everything was new, right? You know, and ready to move in, and we did it, and we could afford it, even uh-huh. better, we could afford it. Back then? Ba- then. <laughs> then. Jesus, that was 39 years ago. Yeah, and, but you haven't lived in Manhattan in how long? 31 years. Oh, you left, you, you came out here. Well, I got this, you know, I got this f- freak incident in my life. I got a phone call about auditioning for Entertainment Tonight toward the end of the first season. I, to, to go back a half a step, 
like every author, yeah. you want to get on shows to promote your books. Sure. And I got lucky. I got on the Today Show. Yeah. And then I got lucky again. They had me back. And I'd uh -huh. just written a book about movie comedians uh -huh. from Charlie Chaplin to Woody Allen. Uh -huh. And Gene Shalit interviewed me, and he yeah. couldn't have been nicer. Gene Shalit. And uh, he... He said, uh, we don't have to stick to these pre-interview things. Do uh -huh. I said, no, talk about whatever you want. Yeah. So we had this loose, lively, funny conversation. Uh -huh. 3,000 miles away, somebody at Paramount Television saw this segment yeah. and said to the new boss of this new show, yeah. you're looking for a film critic, aren't you? He said, yes. Yeah. Well, you ought to check out this guy I saw on the Today Show. And my uh -huh. phone rang in New York. Yeah. The phone rang. Right. I pick up the phone. In your home. I'm home, right? I'm typing on my typewriter. You remember yeah. those? Yeah, sure. And uh, the guy says, would you be willing to audition? I said, yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. And they flew me out to L.A. to do an audition of, of a couple of movie reviews. I'm shortening the, the very long story. Sure. And uh, they used my auditions on the air. Huh. And they never officially hired me. It took a long time for them to hire me, but they just kept flying me out and having me tape stuff. Uh-huh. So I commuted, essentially, for a year and a half from New York to L.A. Weekly? No, every, every third week at first, which was sort of livable. Yeah. I was always home on the weekend with yeah. my wife and then home for two full weeks. Right. And then back for a week. Mm -hmm. And then it got to be every other week, and that really took a toll. And oh, I yeah, was, it's exhausting. I was, I was spending all my time planning. Who am I going to have dinner with? When am I going to see this film? Should I see this film in New York? At this? No, maybe I'll wait and see it in L.A. Wasted energy. Yeah. And my wife finally... Ultimately, it's always my wife, <laughs> Alice, said, yeah. enough, yeah. enough already. So we sublet our apartment and moved out here temporarily. Sure. 31 years ago. And never left. Never left. Our daughter was born here. She's yeah. a California girl. Well, I, I, what, what, what compelled you... Like what? What was your? What did your dad do? What kind of gr household did you grow up in? Uh, my dad was an immigration judge. Wow. And my mother was a housewife who had been in show business. She was a. She sang in nightclubs when she was a teenager and played the accordion during the big band era. No, no, d d during the cabaret and nightclub era. Okay, you might say. And uh, was she and, a novelty actor? No, no, she was. Uh, she was a singer. She was a vocalist. She was. She played accordion in earnest. In company. No, no. If you heard her play, you would know it wasn't in earnest. Yeah. But she could accompany herself. Uh huh. And uh, and so she still did occasional club dates uh -huh. when I was growing up. Sang sang around here and there. And so, but most of the growing up was in Teaneck. Yeah. And my dad, my uncle died when I was a year and a half old, and he had been a pianist and a songwriter. Right. Never a great success, but he had songs published and recorded. Uh-huh. And my father took over his ASCAP estate and membership uh -huh. and subscribed to Weekly Variety. Okay. And as a kid, I found Variety just absolutely fascinating and exotic. But because of the, the movie stars? No, because of everything. Uh -huh. Everything about show business, not just the movie stars. They used to have a column mark that went, NY to LA, uh -huh. who was traveling that week from New York to LA, LA to London, uh -huh. and you know, yeah. uh, uh, NY to you know, all these things. It's like wow. So it was it was glamorous, it was glamorous. Exciting. I would read, I would read nightclub reviews yeah, from yeah. Vegas, right? And uh, nightclub reviews, uh, people I wish I could go and see. Like who? I, who were your people then? Like, oh, who are you, like this it, is old school show business, sure, you like, know. So, uh, like, uh, what, Ethel Merman? Well, no, no. Well, Louis Prima and Keeley Smith. Uh huh. Loved them. Used to watch them whenever they were on the Ed Sullivan show. So you're a jazz uh, guy. Yeah, jazz and pop. Uh huh. Know, yeah. Love Mel Torme. Love was that your Mel first Torme. passion? Was the music? I was always exposed to music, and I took piano lessons. Yeah. And uh, it was always music going on in our household. Uh huh. But did you go down to like I don't know? How old are you now? I'm sixty three. 
But did, were you uh, were you in uh, close enough to New York to go to like the Village Vanguard or go see shows? Or oh well, when I got when I got to be like twelve, they let me go into the city by myself. And most of what Isn't I that was amazing. Doing then. I, I remember when I went to my grandmother's house, like I was thirteen or fourteen. You take the bus in. Yeah, you would never let a twelve year old kid go. Oh no, it. no, of course not. No one thought. No one batted an eyelash. Just jump on the bus, go to the Port Authority, right? Yeah. yeah. Either that, or I could go across the George Washington, where I was in North yeah. Jersey. Yeah. Take the bus across the George Washington Bridge and then take the subway downtown. Yeah. Either way, yeah. And uh, a friend and I would spend the day in the city, but we'd be going to the New Yorker Theater or the Revival Theaters, the Thalia, the New Yorker, uh-huh. uh, the Museum of Modern Art, which showed you know Great. repertory films every day. That was what we were mostly doing in high school. It was, yeah. Right. Uh-huh. When I got a little older, I went to NYU, uh-huh. and it was around that time I really got seriously interested in jazz. Uh-huh. And I did get to go to the Vanguard, and I did get to go to you know the Half Note and uh-huh. some other some other uh, places like that. And then when I got out of college parenthetically yeah and i was freelancing and and actually trying to make a living at freelancing yeah for the first time i said to a friend i would really love to write about jazz but how do you sort of announce to the world hey i'm here to write about jazz yeah and he said you know the village voice takes freelance i said they do he said yeah so i wrote a piece on spec Uh a review and sent it into the voice and they bought it that's great. On what? Uh, uh, it was a review of a, a great pianist and band leader named Duke Pearson, who was at the half note. Uh-huh. And uh, I got a check for 65 bucks, and I think it was the most exciting paycheck I've ever gotten in my life. Being, was that the first time you were paid as a writer? No, no, no. I'd been published before. Uh-huh. Uh, but it was the Village Voice, and it, it was... was... Yeah, and it was about jazz, uh-huh. which which I'd fallen in love with. Who uh, who was the only... Uh, what, Nat Hentoff? Was he writing yet? He was... Well, he still... He did his column for many, many years. Yeah. But uh, he he was a separate, you know, name uh-huh. byline. But Gary Giddens started... At, uh, writing for The Voice at the same time I did, and he has gone on to become one of the preeminent jazz writers of our generation. Well, when you say that you you you, you went to NYU, what were you what were you studying? Well, at that time there was no undergraduate film study program. That's how long ago this is, right? Uh, but film study is different than film production, so right? Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I didn't want to be a filmmaker. You just wanted to write about film, uh, right? So what I did was I was a journalism major. It turned out to be the right choice. Uh-huh. And then they were very nice. They let me cherry pick film courses I wanted to take for credit. Uh huh. So I got to, to to do some interesting stuff film wise there, and uh, history of documentary and you know interesting stuff like that. Well, what compelled you to to like to take that approach? I mean, I mean, you say you were going to see these these movies as a kid in revival houses, so you were already you know kind of fascinated with going back to the silent era and going yeah. back to the beginning of film. Like I had to watch all those movies, you know. I, I had to watch, you know, D.W. Griffith's Intolerance. Mm-hmm. I had to watch, uh, you know, City Lights. I mean, mm-hmm. I loved watching them, but yeah. there, there were movies that I wouldn't have seen otherwise right. hadn't I been in a, in a film studies program. My teacher was actually a, a fairly renowned British uh, film critic, I guess. His name was Roger Manvell. Oh, yeah, very well known. Uh-huh, and I, taught, I took history of film with Manvell mm-hmm. uh, for a year. and uh, But I, I became sort of... I don't know. It wasn't disillusion, but I became fascinated with the, the dialogue of criticism, which I don't know exists as much as it used to at all anymore. No. So when you got into it, what was it that really kind of you know compelled you to write about film? Well, it was film history that really got me hooked. Mm-hmm. I, I never thought of myself becoming a film critic at mm-hmm. all. Didn't right. Th- didn't think I was smart enough to do that and or erudite enough to do that. Were there but, film critics around at the time? Oh, sure. Well, that was the era of uh, Andrew Saris and Pauline Kael. So, Cahiers de Cinema yeah, yeah. was, I remember, was happening. I remember reading Saris's original essay about the, the, the auteur theory. Right. 
when it came out, which was, you know... Uh, that was Cahiers de Cinema, Earth, right? Or, yes, yeah. Earth, Earth Shattering. Right. And then he published his paperback uh, New American or on the American cinema, which sort of collated all of that material together. Andrew Serres, that's right. And and then there was Sight and Sound, the, mm-hmm. that magazine. British magazine, yep. And, you know, see, when I started, so that was already happening. So you're yeah. looking at that stuff. This is high-minded shit, man. Yeah, but th- that was way, that was kind of above my head. I mean, well, what was, were they trying to do, did you think? I mean, when you were taking that in, you know, as somebody who who, who spent the life writing about film, I'm just asking you from a yeah. personal point of view, because yeah. I read this stuff too, yeah. and there's a moment there where, or or, or what's his name, uh, Jury Lotman's piece on, on semiotics and cinema, mm-hmm. and there, there are these, uh, you know, these uh, Peter Wolin, yeah. his stuff on semiotics. Oh, I, I couldn't do that. Well, I know, but like, I, I couldn't either, but it seemed it seemed so important to me that, that, that like, I was so upset that I couldn't understand. Yeah, the, I never we, got as far as semiotics. It, no. we, it's hard. No. But what is no, it No, see, I, I, I'm, I fell in love with movies largely at first because of TV. Because uh-huh. as a child of the first TV generation, yeah. TV was a living museum of movies. Right. I go, every day I watched Laurel and Hardy. Yeah. Every single day. How my, great was that? On, was it Channel 11? Channel 11, yeah, exactly. In Jersey. Right? Yeah. And uh, every day I would Bowery watch Boys. The, the Little Rascals. Yeah, Three every Stooges. Day I would watch The Stooges when they came on. I would watch uh, an endless, endless old cartoons. Yeah. Thousands, hundreds, you know, uh-huh. a week. Couldn't get enough of them. Uh-huh. And uh, and unlike a lot of my friends, I was curious about them. The difference between me and normal <laughs> kids mm-hmm. was that I wanted to know more. Right. And I went to the library. And of course, I watched Walt Disney every week. I came home and watched the Mickey Mouse Club every day. I watched Walt Disney on his weekly TV show. And he would often delve into his own history. You were obsessed. How, yeah. I got hooked. Yeah. The way some kids get hooked on baseball or right. something. You know, I got hooked on movies and then movie history. And I went to the local library where I spent a lot of my youth, and there weren't that many books to take out at that time. Yeah. There was one book on Disney. It was a good one, but, yeah. but it was just that one. Yeah. There was one book on Chaplin. Uh, was it Manville's uh, book? No, it was mm-hmm. Theodore Huff's book. Okay. And uh, uh, which they then dis- they had a discontinued copy I was able to buy for 10 cents. That was the first movie book I ever bought <laughs> at a library sale, yeah, yeah. Over, overstock sale, right, 10 right. cents. Good deal. A, a wonderful deal. And uh, I just, I gobbled all this up. Uh, a book on Laurel and Hardy came out when I was 10 or 11 years old, took it out from the library, read it, returned it, took it out again, read uh-huh. it again, read it twice, returned it, took it out again, read it again. And then and then you became sort of, uh, you yourself you know, wrote on these film comedians. Well, when I was 12 or 13, uh, I started writing about all this stuff in my own little homemade magazine, what we used to call in those days a fanzine. And what, what, what were you writing about? What was your approach? I, well, at that time, I was just you know trying to simulate what I'd seen in print already, writing on the career of Buster Keaton. Sure, okay. The career of Douglas Fairbanks. Right. But you were 12. Like yeah. Okay. Right. You yeah. Know, you know, trying to imitate a grown-up, uh-huh. essentially. Uh-huh. And, uh, and publishing myself. And then I found out that there was a whole world of these fanzines. And I offered my services to two of them in particular. At 12? At 13. You were 13? Yep. Did wrote, they know you were 13? Only after they accepted the articles. Uh-huh. Once, the, once they took... And there was no money involved. This uh-huh. is all labor of love. This, uh-huh. These are all amateur publishers and editors. Uh, but I was just thrilled to see my byline and, you know, and it was very they, prob- they published them even though they knew yeah. you were 13. Yeah. And then what was... What, what do you think? Because it's interesting that later... You know, punk rock culture, you know, it sort of, you know, kind of built itself out the same way, you mm-hmm. know, through zines and local and yeah. local scenes. So what was the community of film fanzines, 
you know, driven by? What, what was it? Just uh, uh, you know, film nerds? Was it people that were? Was it an, an ongoing discourse about certain uh, no, films? No, there was nothing. There was nothing that you could even uh, remotely call a discourse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a bunch of guys who loved old movies. Okay. And I, I was on the young end of the curve. Mm-hmm. I wasn't the only young person, but I was a rarity. Uh-huh. And what was nice was that the grown-ups took me in. Uh-huh. They were very kind to me uh, and, and accepted me. Well, what was your sort of at, at that young age, I, I imagine it's hard to remember to really discern that, you know, an obsession with old movies uh, is it, there was a lot of those guys around for a while. You know, I don't know how many of them are still around, but there was a period there, I think, that that the nostalgia for for silent films or musicals, it sort of, it seemed to have peaked out during, you know, after uh, Jack Haley Jr. made That's Entertainment Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. and some of those movies, that there was a a heightened appreciation uh, for for the film, silent film comedies and and for for some Mm -hmm. of that stuff that, that seems to be almost gone now. Well, the sil- actually, the silent comedies are alive and well. Are they? There, there are a surprising number of showings all over the country, all over the world with live music, sometimes with Didn't they just orchestras. release a Buster Keaton box? Oh, well, uh, they've reissued it. Yeah, it on was Blu-ray re- now. On Blu-ray. How yeah. is that? Great. Yeah? I need to Great. get one. Oh, they're fantastic. Uh, you know, nothing's, nothing is quite the same as seeing it in person with live music. But do you think, I guess my, my question is, you know, in looking at the nostalgia for that, is that, you know, in the, you know, once the 60s come around and once the auteur theory is established and once you have this, this, this new understanding of film, that it seemed to me that there was people that really held on to the purity of, of what the simplicity of film at that time. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think there was a fear that it would just be steamrolled and, 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 and disappear or something. <laughs> well, but it mattered so much. Uh, this is not an original thought. Uh-huh. But in that era of Pauline Kael and Andrew Sarris, we're talking about mid to, mid-60s through, through the 70s, mm-hmm. uh, people debated film. People were passionate about film. People talked about the new films. It was a big deal. The way people talk now about Breaking Bad, right, or about House of Cards, right, or about. Uh, but it was the a Walking smaller, Dead it was a smaller like group of people. It was a much now, now smaller the, group like, of people. The, the dialogue is is consumes the entire planet. Yeah, exactly. We all have uh, access to each other. We have access to each other, unlimited uh, access to it, yeah. un- unfettered access, uh, unfettered one hundred and forty character <laughs> access to everybody. Exactly. I mean, when I tell people what I used to have to do to publish my fanzine, first I, I started with a mimeograph machine. And this one, you're thirteen. Uh, even before, actually, but like the ones you just gave me from the seventies. Those are those. Well, by that time, it was professionally printed, right, uh, from a local printer. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And but when I started, Film Fan Monthly, right, March. It, it was okay. Did it for nine years. I edited and published that magazine. Well, it's interesting because so this is nineteen seventy two, Leonard. It's nineteen seventy two. Yeah. And on the cover of these two that you gave me, you know, you have uh, is that Gable and Lombard, right? No, uh, Harlow. Harlow, Gable and Gene Harlow from Wings. What is that from? No, that's from. um, I'm not sure which film that's from. That that could be from Hold Your Man. Okay, and then you got Will Rogers. Yep. Now this is nineteen seventy two, Leonard. Yes. This was not the discourse. No, this no, this was not the discourse. Which is why this was always an oddball magazine for. For you know, for a very specialized niche, we didn't call it that then. Niche audience <laughs> for people of, that like those old movies. People like those old movies, yes. And, and even then, even when I was publishing this, yeah, having Will Rogers on the cover was not a good commercial idea. No, no, I, know, I can't. I, I, it doesn't I, look like you were setting out to make a fortune. with No, this magazine. no, but but if I'd put even then, if I'd put Bogart on the cover. That would have been a better idea. But I have to assume but, that you had a Bogart cover at some point. Uh, no, don't assume. 
You didn't have you didn't no. play. <laughs> I had a Nigel Bruce cover. Uh-huh. You know, played uh, you know, Dr. Watson to Basil Rathbone and Sherlock Holmes. Okay, so this wasn't just you. You were an editor. I was an editor, publisher, I licked stamps, stuffed envelopes. My dad helped me take care of the business but end you, of it. But you were you were driven, and you know, yeah. by this point, by 1972, I, uh, Easy Rider is out. Yes, uh, Five Easy Pieces is out. Yes, uh, you, you know what the uh, what the maybe the long not the long goodbye, but uh, oh no, Altman is starting to flourish, and Coppola. I mean, the early 70s, you know, the great flowering of American cinema. Of new American, new American cinema, cinema. The, the American auteurs, right? And, and you've the, got which, the, which are now the touchstone for all young filmmakers that I meet. They look to that period as as the the high point, as, right? As the, for their role model, sure, the antihero and the you know the existential character. But but what I what I'm looking at is that you've got Gable and Harlow <laughs> on the cover of your. Man. What were you avoiding, Leonard? Swimming I mean, what, against the tide. Is Mark. that what you were Just doing? Swimming, no, not deliberately. Uh-huh. Not, I, I saw I saw Easy Rider. I saw Five Easy Pieces. I absorbed all of that too. What was loved your it. feeling? Oh, you I did loved, love it. I loved all. Oh God, Altman. I was uh, Altman was just uh, too much. To McCabe take. and Mrs. Miller is a masterpiece. I hated it the first time and fell in love with it the second time. I've watched it like nine or ten times. I mean, look, I love them. Yeah, they're ones I have problems with. Uh, but uh, like, there's like I don't. The Long Goodbye doesn't work for me. Not my favorite. It's not my favorite either. Nashville, great, pure heaven, pure heaven. Absolute pure Nash, heart. and I got to, and I got to meet him. I got to chat with him a couple times. Uh, but what know. was the intention? So you you go from this. And yeah. You're not writing. You're not writing movie criticism. No, you're 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 writing. Uh, what would you Mo- call it? Movie history. Okay, and then interviewing as many of the the uh, veterans of that era as I could. Who'd you interview at that time? Well, see, I mean, again, offbeat. When I made my first journeys out here to uh, La La Land. In '69, and what were you 70. coming out for then? Uh, I came out to, to do a bunch of interviews for my magazine. For this magazine, right? Film Fan Monthly. Yeah. Yep. Now, what was the public? What was the readership? Uh, about fifteen hundred people uh-huh. all over the world, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and you know, and it was very personal. I mean, the, I, the kind of mail I got in those. You remember mail? Sure. Yeah, with stamps. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. I used to get mail. Uh-huh. You know, people people who loved it loved it. Like what kind of mail? Like I'm so glad you're keeping the spirit of this alive. Yeah, and- yeah, or 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 sending uh, additional thoughts or corrections or saying, oh, you should have mentioned his performance in this film. That oh, was a great sure. one too. Yeah. But I came out here and I interviewed Ralph Bellamy. You did? Yeah. Is he I still inter- around? No. Oh. No, they're all gone. But he worked uh, late. He, he worked well into his career. He, he's in uh, trading places. Uh, you know, trading places uh-huh. with Eddie Murphy. You know that story? Uh-uh. This is apparently a true story. And uh, in fact, John Landis told me it was true, uh-huh. and he directed the movie. Eddie Murphy is in a, tra- a makeup trailer one morning. Yeah. Ralph Bellamy and Don Amici, two, you know, long time movie actors yeah. are sitting there and they're all getting made up. Yeah. And Ralph says, you know, uh, Don, I figured out this is my 98th movie. How many have you made? And he says, uh, gee, I think I've made about uh, 50. Yeah. And Eddie Murphy says, hey, between us, we made 150 movies. <laughs> Anyway, so I interviewed Ralph Bellamy. I interviewed Joan Blondell. Uh-huh. I interviewed character actors like Grady Sutton, who played W.C. Fields' idiot nephew in The Bank Dick, who was a wonderful guy. And you were thrilled and, to do it. Thrilled. Thrilled yeah. beyond words. And and when you sat with these people, who I even imagine at that time were getting on in years. Yes, indeed. You know, what What were the type of... What would you ask W.C. Fields' sidekick? <laughs> well, I mean, I asked him how he got started. Right. Uh, and he had interesting stories of, you know, coming out and breaking into the movies in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I'm, t- I'm talking to somebody who was out here in the 20s, Mark. So you were completely you know. immersed in the myth of Hollywood. Oh, yes, absolutely. You loved and it all. The realities, too, you mm-hmm. know, but I mean, but it was wonderful. He, you know, Fields liked him. Fields used to him, uh, his name was Grady Sutton, mm-hmm. and Fields used him several times because uh, he, he played off him well. He knew he was a good foil. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he wasn't trying to steal a scene, uh-huh. you know. And so so they were they were they, they were simpatico. I interviewed uh, Mitchell Lysen, who was a, an art director turned director in the Golden Age. He directed two scripts by Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett. Mm-hmm. And and uh, Wilder always said it was watching what Mitchell Lysen did wrong with his screenplays that made him want to direct. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, I, but I interviewed Mitchell Eisen. It was a very interesting guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, so I, you know, I couldn't get enough of this stuff. And I just it, loved it. And the, so, like you said, you wrote, you talked to Gene Shallot about the great film comedians. Yeah. What, um, what, again, I mean, you call yourself a historian, but there must have been, you know, what was your insight into who did you cover? You, you, who did you, you cover? Buster Keaton, oh, Charlie, no, Charlie Chaplin, Chaplin, all the people you could imagine. W.C. Fields, Laurel and Hardy, W.C. Fields, Harold Lloyd, May West, Harold Lloyd, Harry Langdon, the Three Stooges, uh, Abin Costello, Jerry Lewis, uh-huh. uh, Danny Kaye, Bob Hope. You did Red, all that. Red Skelton, yeah, that's that whole book, which I'm preparing now to revive as an ebook on Kindle. Uh-huh, and, and that book sold well? It did pretty well. And what was this uh, again? History, or were you? Did you go deeper into the the ideas of the types of comedy these people did? Well, I I tried to bring some some perceptivity. Is that a word? Sure. To you know insight to, uh, insight yeah into what they did and how they did it. What, who was your and favorite? I also, and I also got to to interview people who'd worked with them. Uh huh. To give some insight into their their mo. Fatty you know, Arbuckle. Uh, Fatty Arbuckle. There's a chapter on him on Mabel Normand. Uh huh. You know, the great comedian who worked opposite Chaplin. Did you read Jerry Stahl's book, I Fatty? Uh, no. You should read it. I heard it was good. It's heavy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a novelization from the first from Fatty's point of view. Right, right. Yeah, that focuses right. on his drug addiction and his troubles. Yes. But, uh, but, you, but it doesn't seem like, it seemed like your entire, uh, not agenda, but you, you, you were not a tabloid guy. You, you didn't get- Oh, no, no, no. I was not looking for dirt. But but the, but you were not as fascinated. I, I I I tend to think that there are people that are equally as fascinated in 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 Hollywood for the dark reasons yeah. that you are for the for the light reasons. That's true. Kenneth Anger covered that that turf See, rather well. Uh, another I name, another name that nobody gives a shit about anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I I mean, is Hollywood Babylon even in print? I mean, he oh, started it. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. He started it. Yeah, I know. He invented a lot of that stuff. The glorification too. of it, the elevating yeah, yeah, of it. Yeah. I mean, obviously, Tabloid had been around forever. Right. But we, oh, Confidential was in the 50s. You right. And that was the, right. the, the really seediest, seemiest of them all. Did you like uh, LA Confidential? I did. It's like I, I rewatched it. You know, I've tr- like I'm, I'm very critical of modern noir mm-hmm. and you know, I didn't quite, you know, I didn't quite process it uh as, as honoring uh you know, the form as much as I real I didn't realize it did, but it's a pretty oh, spectacular Curtis, movie. Curtis Hansen's a very very smart. savvy guy. It's smart, man. And he knows films as well as anybody alive. Uh-huh. So yeah, he did So who job. were your favorite film comedians? I I, I know there's everybody a big book I, of, everybody I just mentioned. All of them. But yeah. you must have had one that really moved you. Chaplin is my god. Is he? Chaplin is kind of. It all starts with Chaplin. It okay. seems to me, you know, and I, I find him endlessly fascinating. Endlessly uh, fascinating. For what reason? Well, if you've ever seen Kevin Brownlow and David Gill's great documentary called Unknown Chaplin, uh-huh. they found all of his raw footage. Right. 
from a certain period in his his career. Yeah, and so he he shot everything. He rehearsed and worked out his ideas while the camera was rolling. Right. They figured this out, organized all this footage, right, and collated it into a documentary that is just mesmerizing. Uh huh. You see him develop an idea and oh, wow. refine it, right, and get it better and get it better and then get it even better and then finally get it perfect. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know he he was he was unique. He was he was truly a genius, one of a kind. Well, there was a, you know in my recollection the the, the sort of uh, celebration of Chaplin. A lot of it revolved around you know his characterization of the underdog yeah. and you know and his incredible you know empathy for for people who 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 were you know downtrodden. Right. That. But rem- know, remember too that he was the first real superstar. Mm-hmm. A word they didn't coin in mm-hmm. those days. Yeah. But he started working exactly a hundred years ago. Actually, this is his centenary year in film. Uh-huh. Uh huh. It was nineteen fourteen. Max Sennett signed him at the very end, I think December 1913. Uh Started making films in 1914. Now picture this. There's not only no internet and no cable Mm -hmm. and none of that. Not only is there no television, there isn't even radio yet. Right. Okay? All there is is newspapers and magazines. Uh That's communication. Right. Within months of his screen debut, he was a star. And by the end of 1914, he was a worldwide phenomenon. Mm Mm-hmm. Not just a star, a phenomenon. They put these standees of him outside theaters and say, he's here today. People would flock. Uh, There were suddenly, there were Chaplin imitators. There were Charlie Chaplin costume contests. Uh, There were Charlie Chaplin comic strips and animated films within another year or so. Uh, Truly a phenomenon. And it all happened before modern communication. That's how potent he was. And then he started United Artists with what, Mary Pickford? Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks and Griffith. Yep. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, amazing history! Amazing history. Yeah, I was like, I was obsessed and fascinated with pictures of old movie stars. Like, I, it was mm-hmm. weird because I never made it. Cause my grandmother, you know, sort of was into it, and then yeah, you know, I, I just, I, I could probably identify more stars than I would know their work. It's weird. The pictures to me were were very moving for some reason. Like, I couldn't tell you that I'd seen a Douglas Fairbanks movie, mm-hmm. but I know exactly what he looks like. Mm-hmm. And well, there was an awareness. You see. Th- th- before the era of narrow casting, uh-huh. you know, before this, everybody running their own channel, everybody running their their own communications industry uh-huh. in in miniature, uh, there was more uh, of a consensual or consensus popular culture. Yeah, you know, right. If I, if when I everyone's on, you know, when there were three networks in exactly the studios, three networks, right. we all got the same shit. So, so if you wanted to see the Beatles on yeah. the Ed Sullivan Show, you had to sit through Sophie Tucker. <laughs> You know, or Myron Cohen, you know, and Myron Cohen on the Ed yeah, Sullivan show. Yes, exactly. Or, you know, Se- or Senor Wences, God bless him, uh, who I got to meet. You know, a rare non-Yiddish performance <laughs> from Myron Cohen. <laughs> so you were exposed to these other forms of show business mm. just by accident or osmosis. Mm-hmm. Everybody was. Right. Everyone. No one didn't know who Senor Wences was. That's right. In 1962. Yeah, right. You know, or 1965. Right. Sure. Uh, he was ubiquitous. Yeah. And uh, and we should explain that he was one of the great ventriloquists who in used show his business hand. history. Who used, among other things, his hands. <laughs> Johnny was the little guy in his yeah, hand. Yeah. He had Pedro in the box. Uh-huh. Oh, that's all right. It's all right. Great, great act. Yeah. And he lived to be 101. Mm-hmm. Amazing man. I got to interview him. What was his him. real name? Uh, Wenceslas, I forget his last name. Moreno. Uh-huh. Wenceslas Moreno. Uh huh. I met him and his wife. They were lovely. Uh huh. Uh, I have a picture of me with Wences and Pedro in the box when my beard was very dark. Uh-huh. 
And his wife said, I looked like Pedro. So I have a picture of us together. Oh, that's sweet. So the point being that, you know, that that for, for you, Chaplin represented the birth of, of yeah. the power of film. Yes. And, 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 and the birth of screen comedy, really. Uh-huh. And, and the individual screen comedian. And but there, were, that, there, there were comics before him, but he really set the standard. But most of it was slapstick because, they, you know, there was no sound. Right. But he, within ju- again, within just a year or two, he starts finding more to it than simply knockabout stuff, than simply kicking somebody in the rear end and then running. Well, yeah, the, the sort of heavy-hearted moral tales. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, some of them subtler than that. Uh-huh. There was more nuance in him. Like than what? Than, well, a lot of his early films. The Immigrant is uh-huh. a wonderful two. He did these 12 short subjects. Yeah. He was being paid a fortune of money for mutual comedies, mutual films. It, within two years' time, they're called the, the Mutual Dozen. Uh-huh. And these dozen films, Easy Street, The Immigrant, The Rink, uh, 1 a.m., uh, The Cure, uh, they're all great little films. They're, they're l- little models of perfection, of, of storytelling in the comedic form. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and when you see that documentary, you see how hard he worked to make it look so easy. So he was sort of, uh, you know, uh, not only a gifted storyteller, but you know, his, his meticulous, you know, physical craftsman. Oh yeah. But you know, he, you know, he definitely had uh, a vision, and his heart was in the right place. And he's a, he developed a vision. Yeah. He developed a vision, and 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 it kept growing. And when he started to in, uh, include elements of pathos uh-huh. and, and uh, wistfulness in his film, not everybody liked that. Like just, where did that start well, in the features? He 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 approaches it in the shorts, but then when he made the kid with Jackie yeah. Coogan, yeah, that's a real tearjerker, and it still works as a tearjerker because mm-hmm. Coogan is such a natural, an adorable kid, and his relationship with Charlie is so endearing, yeah, that it, it tears your heart out. It's, and it's just wonderful. The Gold Rush is pretty. Astounding. Gold Rush is wonderful. Yeah, these, what was these, that heavy set films. guy that played Max Swain? Max Swain. Yeah. When they're eating the shoe. You know that name, Mark. Yeah. You know Max Swain. I do know yeah, Max yeah. Swain. Yeah, I mean, it is part of me. I don't have the time to, to like, I, I don't t- tend to get completely obsessed with things, but, mm-hmm. you know, the, I, the, during a, a period in my life, I was very interested. Mm-hmm. Like, there, you know, you know, Keaton was uh, astounding. And when you have teachers that are really telling you that, you know, to sort of contextualize it historically, which I think is a big problem because of the internet now and because of, of where culture is, is that everything sort of floats without context. Everything sort of floats. I'm afraid. In so uh, in a sort of uh, a, a, an ever-present now right so so where's the relative importance of things well yeah, know, it, yeah it's yeah, it's yeah. getting lost you, you you know that there's no way to realize like well not only is this great if people are like well i don't get it it's like well no one had ever done it before yeah exactly my, when my daughter was in middle school yeah i think she was in 10th grade mm-hmm. maybe maybe it was high school mm-hmm. one of her teachers was doing a film course and asked if i would come by and speak to the kids because they were watching citizen kane Okay, so I stopped by one morning. It's high school, right? So they can't they can't watch a two hour movie during a class period, right? So they're watching it in twenty minute chunks. That's crazy. In in you know, sitting at desks, yeah, in a room where the light is spilling in through the so called right. blackout curtains, right. and and they're kids, yeah. And he hasn't told them anything about what else was going on in the world in nineteen forty one. They haven't seen what other films looked like in nineteen forty one. They have no context, right? I mean. This is like the world's worst way to watch a great movie. Yeah. You couldn't invent, or maybe on an airplane. If they had done all that and what was on an airplane, that could yeah. have been worse. Right. But that would be the only way. Right. And it's like, you know, what are you going to say to these kids? And then, of course, you're saying to them, okay, here's the world's greatest movie. Watch yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, well, appreciate what, it. Well, what did you do? 
I tried. I tried to give him a little background, <laughs> uh-huh. a little context to say how revolutionary it was for its time. It's not for an easy time. movie. No, no. I, I think it's a compelling movie no matter what. But you, the only way to really appreciate it fully is to get what he was doing that was so different. That was so unusual at that moment. Well, I mean, but you know, for me, the, the the one thing that resonated with me in in the Orson Welles canon was uh, was Tolan's cinematography. Yes, that you know that you know you, you know you got this genius. I think it was the first time I realized, like you know, there's a genius, but then there's the other genius. Yeah, whoever the, who's the genius behind the genius. Well, I know. Well, see, when I was a kid, there was another place in Manhattan I used to go to that. Uh, called, uh, it was the Huntington Hartford Museum. Uh-huh. The millionaire had uh, d- dedicated the museum on Columbus Circle. Uh-huh. And they had a film program. And they brought in guests. And one day they had a tribute, one, one month, they had a tribute to the director, Ruben Mamoulian. Uh-huh. I'd never heard of him. And I yeah, never I thought about directors. I was only interested in the stars. Right. I was like 15, 16. And I heard Mamoulian speak. Well, Mamoulian, who was the original director of Porgy and Bess on stage mm-hmm. and Oklahoma on stage, and uh, and then did landmark movies. He did this, uh, the, the the most revolutionary early talking musical. Yeah. He did the first film in Technicolor. Had many milestones yeah. to his credit. Well, he was so enchanting and so articulate and so amusing and interesting. I said, oh, there's somebody behind the camera. Same as you're saying. Right. The, the actors don't just get up and make this up. Yeah. Somebody's guiding. Somebody's really thinking about this. Those are amazing moments where your mind gets blown. That was like, it. Yeah. That was it for me. Deepens he it. To- opened a door. So wait, let's go. Let's go through your. I want to go through the you know some specific questions about what you've written about because uh, you've written about a lot of stuff. Let me tell you my uh, emblematic story. I'm 17 years old. I'm in my senior year of high school, a Teaneck High School in New yeah. Jersey. Right. Uh huh. And I'm publishing my fanzine now, yeah. which we now get professionally printed by a guy in the next town over. Uh, I don't have to run a mimeograph machine anymore. Mm-hmm. And a woman who's an English teacher in my school, who I don't have for any classes, but she's a nice lady, stopped me in the hall one day and she said, I really like what you're doing with your magazine. And I have a friend who's an editor at Signet Books in New York. And I think the two of you would really hit it off. Here's his number. I want you to call him. You're 17. Yeah. I want you to call him and go meet him after school one day. Okay, so I call him and we make an appointment. Yeah. And one day I take the bus yeah. into Manhattan and I bring a couple of copies of my magazine with me. Yeah. And in my head, of course, I'm ideas are, are gurgling. Yeah. Ooh, maybe I'll get to write a book. Maybe yeah. I'll write a book about uh, Humphrey Bogart. Or, right, g- right. Goodness knows. Yeah. I get there. He's very nice. We're breaking the ice in yeah. this little meeting. And he says, what'd you bring along? I said, well, this is this magazine I published. He said, oh, I love your magazine. I said, how do you know it? He said, well, I used to subscribe to it, yeah. which I didn't re- remember. I didn't put his name together at all. He'd been in a different publishing house. He said, do you know this book that's out called Movies on TV? And there was a paperback edited by a guy named Stephen Shore. That was the only book of its kind. Yeah. A paperback book with little capsule reviews right. of thousands of movies. And I knew it backwards and forwards. I used it every day. Mm-hmm. He said, do you know that book? I said, I know it really well. He said, do you like it? I said, I like it as far as it goes. Yeah. He said, what would you do different? I said, well, I'd put in more cast names. He only lists like two cast names. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't list the director. I'd put, in the direct- I'd put in the running time so you know if the local TV station is chopping it up. I'd say whether it's in color or black and white. I rattled off all these things that I would do. He said, how'd you like to do it? I said, what do you mean? He said, I've been looking for somebody to do a rival book. I want to do a competitive book to that. Uh, you want to do it? 
I said, uh, yeah, I guess, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He hired me at age 17 to take on this massive assignment of doing a book of capsule movie reviews. And, and he said, I'm going to give, now, you know, we're, we're going to give you a lot of money. He said, try to have some of it left over when you're done because you're going to have to hire people and it's going to cost you money. Be careful. And it was good advice. And uh, I ended up with some. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the first thing I bought was an IBM, a used reconditioned IBM Selectric Tyburn. With the that ball. Was, yeah, right. Yeah. And uh, and so this book came out when I was 18 years old. The first, the first one. Time. Yep. And what was it called? It was then called, terrible title, TV Movies. Yeah. Because the other book had taken the only title for it, which was Movies on TV. Right. Because at that time, there was no home video. There was no premium cable. There was none of that stuff. But they were running movies during the day. Every local station, all day long, all night long. You remember the late show, the late, late show, the late, late, late show. Yeah. So there were lots of people who stayed home and just watched movies all the time on TV. You didn't have to go to Turner Classic Movies to see old movies. Old movies were everywhere. They were the only movies. That's right. You turn the dial, and that's all you saw. Mm -hmm. There were no infomercials in the middle of the night. There were old movies. It was programming, yeah, not advertising, but programming. And so you didn't have to be an expert or an old movie buff to know who W.C. Fields was. Right. Because you just knew him. He was part of the landscape. Yeah. So I got to do this book, and I hired people to help me because it took a lot of work. And it came out, and when it came out, all I saw were its flaws, uh, imperfections, shortcomings. Yeah, sure. Uh, but it did okay. Yeah. And five years later, they called and said, maybe it's time to update it. Okay, yeah. so I did a second one. Then four years later, they called and said, maybe it's time to update it again. Okay, and then, then we did it on every other year. And then eventually, in the 80s, when home video came along, they said, I think we need to do this every year. And so I've been doing it every year for 30 years. And that's the, the Leonard Maltin movie guide. Yeah. yeah. But but outside of that, I mean, you know, that the, to me, this is a, an important resource. And, you know, it, it's limited to the length of these reviews. Yes, of course. Uh, I always thought somebody would do like the real book, a real encyclopedia book. This was just a fingertip guy. Well, I used to have, what was it, Ephraim Katz? Oh, sure. Ephraim Katz was, was, was a good in film. Standard source. Everybody used him. What's that other one? That one there, the... Um, uh, the oh, David Thompson's Biographical Dictionary of that's, Film. That's difficult. Yeah, another, but another widely admired resource. And it, but you know, he's more along the critic... Yes, and Why? he's he's writing critical essays, and he's and very opinionated and unabashedly opinionated. Yes, you know, in assessing people's careers. And but, you don't but, do that. Well, I, I, everything we do, we're like the Twitter of film reviews. You know, these very capsule form. But film it seems reviews. to me that that your love of the business remains intact. Yes, it does. And that uh, you, you know that you know what you're you're bringing to the world is not you know to to sort of you know take it down a notch. Or to assess no. it in a way that would challenge it. No, I'm not gunning for anybody or anything <laughs> uh, in particular, except stupidity. I hate stupid movies, and I hate insulting movies, and I hate movies that are just ripping off other movies instead right. of doing something fresh and original. But when I see something like Wes Anderson's The Grand Budapest Hotel, I say, you know, that 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 gives me happiness and joy. And I don't get that feeling often enough. Well, I think that's what he's in the business of doing. He's a uh, he's so meticulous. He's, he, everything looks. Well, sometimes like sometimes his meticulousness turns me off. I, I was not a fan of Moonrise Kingdom, for instance. Right, uh, a little too precious for my taste. But, but like it, just in a in a in a mise en scène uh, way, the way he loads up a frame is pretty stunning. It's, yes, it's almost it is. it's it's almost like he's a jewelry maker. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, right. You know, yeah. 
but, but you, you wish he'd work on the on the, the story uh, on the story a little more than the <laughs> yeah. than the than the intricate movements inside the the mechanism but like in in the larger books you did i mean you, you, and i haven't read a lot of them but i uh, you know i'm looking at the titles that uh you did, what was movie comedy teams that was my first real book uh that wasn't just a, a collection of these mini reviews they i had my foot in the door now at signet books at new american library and they said what do you want to do next so I submitted three ideas, two yeah. I thought were commercial, one I thought was just something I wanted to do that wasn't commercial, and that's the one they bought, mm-hmm. which is a book about comedy teams. And uh, at that time, and it was about all the teams, yeah. starting with Laurel and Hardy and coming up to the Stooges, Evan Costello, obscure ones like Wheeler and Woolsey from the 30s, Clark and McCullough, who had been a big stage act who made some movies, uh, the, the Three Stooges, of course, yeah. the Ritz Brothers, yeah. all of these acts. And... I just had the best time writing this book, screening these movies, doing the research. No one had ever compiled a list of everybody's films. Yeah. You couldn't look up all the Three Stooges movies. You couldn't do it. Yeah. No one else had printed that. I did. Uh-huh. Now no one cares because yeah. you turn out, you know, you, you, go, you open your iPhone yeah, and, you, and can, you got it. Yeah. But at that time, it was an achievement. And the phenomenon of that book was that it was published, again, before the mall, the mauling of America. Uh-huh. And before the chain bookstores came along. Mm-hmm. And in those days, books, paperbacks were sold in most cities in the drugstore and the Woolworths. That's where books were bought and sold, mm-hmm. except in big cities where yeah. there were stores. So this book came out, it cost a dollar and a half to buy. And it was in spinner racks in, in drugstores and in Woolworths and places like that. And I have had more people to this day come up to me and say, that's the first movie book I ever bought. Wow. Because yeah, it was mostly guys. Yeah, guys like Evan Costello. Yeah, you know, whatever. In sure. those days, you know. Sure. In, in those days, the first movie book, though. But at that time, you were, you know, you were also functioning as a as a, an important archivist. Well, yeah. Well, there, the the field was. Uh, I kind of had the field to myself in a, in a way. I wasn't the only one but, doing this. But it this, seems but. to me that you sensed a threat that if you didn't put this information out in the world, that it would be <laughs> lost forever. Well, I don't know if I go that far. But no, but uh, I, I mean to to say that like no one had ever. You know, written down the full list of. But movies. that was, but that was the excited. That was the excitement of it. Yeah, that was what was so so invigorating about it. What it did is, you learn about comedy teams? I mean, what do they all share? Well, the the ones that, <laughs> a lot of the ones that didn't socialize off screen lasted longer. Oh, really? Yes. Who were who were they? Well, Laurel and Hardy led separate lives. Uh huh. They liked each other fine, but they led separate lives. They were entirely different men, who respected each other completely as performers and that's why they work together so harmoniously mm-hmm. and oliver hardy uh who was a consummate comedian uh was for him it was a job when the job was over he wanted to play golf yeah that's what he cared about yeah he liked to eat obviously yeah. and he liked to play golf yeah and stan laurel lived and breathed comedy uh-huh. when he wasn't marrying a lot of women which uh-huh. he did also <laughs> but uh so th- that was one thing Abin costello uh were wildly popular when they came on the scene, when they came to movies in the early 40s. And they were sort of emblematic of what America was looking for during World War II. They wanted brash comedy. They they were brash. Yeah. And uh, and funny. I mean, their routines are still funny. Yeah. Who's on first is a funny, funny routine. And the the variations they did are very, very funny. Costello is hilarious. Lou Costello is a great, gifted comedian. He really was. But... But they never really developed anything more than just surface characters. And so when their vogue passed and they kind of lost their 
uh, their their initial momentum. It was hard for them to sustain the careers, the, except by revisiting their old routines, which they did on their TV show. I got kind of that obsessed well. with the uh, with the Niagara Falls routine, which, <laughs> which which I didn't realize had been done by many people. Which was out of burlesque. Yeah. A lot of their best routines were right out of burlesque, and, and that's where they started. And there was no crime in that at that time. Oh, no, so, burlesque was a form of entertainment. But, yeah. but you know, the, the idea that, you know, if you could bring yourself to a bit that, that, that was uh, a standard. Yes. That it was almost like songs. That's a yeah. standard. Yeah. Uh, you know, how are they going to do it? Right. Like I watched, I watched the Three Stooges do it, and I watched uh, mm-hmm. Abbott and Costello do it. Yeah, uh, and it, 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 and and I guess a lot of people had done it live. Yeah, and it, that that's sort of fascinating to me that that there was no like no one made a question of like well who who wrote the material. It's like well how do we make it our own? Right. Mm-hmm. Then there was a team called Olson and Johnson who uh-huh. were very big on stage and made a handful of movies in the forties. Uh-huh. They were often accused of stealing people's material. Uh-huh. The way Milton Berle was sometimes you know they used to call it M- Milton the thief of bad gags. Uh huh. You know, and uh-huh. and, uh, and and he would make jokes about it because uh-huh. he so, did, right? Cause he, well, uh, well, uh, I don't know. Apparently, I don't know. Yeah, Steve Allen used to say about Milton that in a cutting contest, no one could beat him because while somebody was trying to think of something funny to say, Milton would remember five other things that he'd already said <laughs> that were funny, <laughs> right? And just spill them out. Yeah. Did you ever meet him? Oh, many times. Yeah. Fascinating he lived, guy. He lived a long time. Why was yes, he, he fascinating? Did. Because he was a walking history of show business, and he had a steel trap mind. My uncle had written a song with him in uh-huh. the 30s. Mm-hmm. And uh, one time my dad was out visiting, and I used to do pledge breaks yeah. at KCET, our public radio sure. uh, station. And it was fun to do because you never knew who else would be on that night. And one night they told me Milton was going to be there. So I brought my dad along, and my father said, you won't remember this, but many, many years ago, my brother Bernard... Uh, wrote a song with you he said bernie yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and heard the name in 50 years immediately yeah. says bernie yeah uh, he was he was amazing uh-huh. he was amazing and funny too always funny yeah always always funny uh-huh and what what compelled you to write an entire book on the uh on the little rascals oh well i grew up as i say watching them every single day of channel my 11 life on channel 11 with yeah. officer joe bolton uh-huh and uh th- you couldn't read a word about them anywhere Huh. Go to the library, try to find a book. This is again long before the internet. Yeah. Couldn't find anything about them. I said, well, I got to write about that. And, and I did, find- and I wrote a book called uh, The Great Movie Shorts, and I did a chapter in that book about Flipper Rascals and printed the first filmography mm-hmm. of uh, all of their films, as I did for a bunch of other people then. And uh, then I met a guy who knew more about them than I did. And I said, we should pool our resources and do a book together, and we did. And it's been in print for 35 years because people are still interested in them. It, got, it didn't end well for a lot of them. No, but the, that's, that's a kind of a tabloid headline. Uh, you didn't focus on that. Well, it's not just I didn't focus on it. It's not entirely true. I, for everyone you can tell me that ended badly, like Alfalfa, you know, who, who had a miserable home life and, uh, you know, as, as usual, it's... If you don't have parents who who are who have their feet on the ground and who treat you like a normal kid, uh, you, you're going to have a hard time. Yeah, and that that was his story, mm-hmm. and and he wound up being shot of, uh, in a bar. You mm-hmm. know, that's a sad story. Right. But uh, but buckwheat had a had a good life. Mm-hmm. Spanky had some rough times and then a very good life, a good marriage, wonderful daughter who I met. Uh, you know, there there wasn't uh, Robert Blake one of them. He was. Yeah. 
He was in the later years. And Jackie Cooper, too? Jackie Cooper. Yeah. Dickie, Dickie Moore, who who had a good career as a child actor. And Scotty Beckett, who had a good career as a child actor. And you just loved him. Uh, couldn't get enough. Yeah. Loved them. And when my daughter was young and I started showing them to her, she uh-huh. loved them, too. Uh-huh. They're irresistible. So outside of the guides and outside of the encapsulations and the, the shorter reviews, it's just interesting to me that you know you did movie, you, movie teams, comedy teams. You did... Uh, you did the Our Gang thing. You wrote. You also did a book on Carol Lombard? Yeah, that was part of a series. There was a paperback series, and uh, uh, they were sort of slim books that were uh, uh, fairly perfunctory bio, uh, bio film career books. Uh, not so very a, deep. So it was a series that net was written by several different people. Oh, they, they, they printed about 50 different uh, oh, titles so you just in this kind series. Of a, and I, was, a, a hired I, I, just, I just, yeah, it was. Oh, okay. So it wasn't a passion I need, piece. I, I needed the money. Okay. But I love Carol Lombard. Yeah. And I had a good time watching all of her films in order to write write this book. But then I wrote a history of animated cartoons. And again, no one had done it before. Uh-huh. And so that was the part of the joy of it was not only getting to do the research. I met, I mean, I talked to Walter Lance. Uh-huh. Walter Lance started an animation in the teens. Uh-huh. In the teens. He, he, he's, he's part of the creation of animated cartoons. I talked to so many guys who worked in the silent film era. I talked to people who were worked alongside Walt Disney in his earliest, earliest days. And what did you learn from them about Walt Disney? Uh, well, Frizz Freeling, who worked with him, who later became one of the mainstays of the Warner Brothers cartoon yeah. department, uh, had no uh, sentimentality about Walt at all. Not at all. In the early days, he said, because uh, they all quit him at one point, in very, very early on. Why? Uh, because they were hired, they were, they were hired away by a by a producer, by a somewhat conniving producer, uh-huh. and they, they said they had no they, they had no personal attachment or affection. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But Walt Walt was a very ambitious guy. Yeah, he and his brother were trying to succeed, and then they they weren't getting rich on other people at that point. They really weren't. They were yeah. putting all the money back into the production. Right. But uh, they needed everybody to work like crazy, and some of them said, you know, well, this isn't what we want to do. People who build empires aren't generally uh, boring. No. And, and he came from nothing. He came from, you know, uh, I mean, genteel poverty, you might say. You know, he was not dirt poor, but, he, you know, it was a hard scrabble life that he had as a kid. Well, so now, like, he, he, looking back on, so you don't consider yourself a film critic. You consider yourself a film reviewer? Film, film historian who makes a living as a film critic. And a film critic, but not not in the sense like, is there a difference between a film reviewer and a film critic? Well, to me, a critic is somebody who can write a somewhat lengthy, thoughtful, provocative essay about a film. Uh, you still read those in magazines like The New Yorker. And I The mean, Times. And, you know, and, and The Times publishes good writing about film. Uh-huh. And both times, New York and L.A., they both have good writers. And a critic uses, you know, uh, intellectual resources to to bring to... I think so. And and tries to hold films to a standard, Mm -hmm. you know, what is uh, an accepted standard of of, uh, quality. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, takes the uh, takes the reader to task sometimes mm-hmm. if 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 they're falling down and supporting you know sloppy crummy movies right so that's what you do well I do it I do it on a once over lightly basis I'm not I'm not a deep thinker I'm the last person to claim that uh-huh. uh, I'm a middle brow critic I would yeah. say yeah but I but I have my you know I have my opinions and they're formed from a lot of experience and I try to write from the heart. And I post my reviews on my website every Friday, 
and hope somebody reads them and gets something out of them. Well, I mean, you sort of created uh, this sort of you and and Cisco and Ebert mm-hmm. uh, seemed to create that 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 particular area of television. You know, the well, the, the encapsulated uh, review. Right. Well, the problem with that is when I got hired by Entertainment Tonight, they said we want you to do a scale of one to ten. You know, rate every film. I said, oh, I hated. I hated doing that in my book too. And when I started doing the, the movie guide, my editor said, you got to do a star rating system, like four stars. For and you the, got for flack for that. No, never got flack for that. Uh, people would argue with the ratings. Sure. But that's what my editor said they would do. He said people like that kind of shorthand. They well, respond and, to that. And Cisco and Ebert had the thumbs up, thumbs exactly down. Exactly so. And so on AT, I used to rate films one to 10. And I never enjoyed doing it. But people would stop me on the street and say, you know, I can tell from your review whether you're going to give it a six or a seven or an eight. And I thought, well, I guess that's a good thing. Sure. It means they're paying attention. It <laughs> yeah. means I'm communicating clearly. Yeah. So I guess that's good. Were you friends with Ebert? Uh, I was friendly with him. I yeah. was ne- never close. Uh, you know, we lived in different cities. And- Were you competitors? Did you ever have conversations? We had conversations. Yeah. As I did uh, more briefly with Gene, I didn't get to know uh, Gene as well as I got to know Roger, especially in later years. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the the problem is that so many people who knew Roger and Gene only knew them from the TV show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as some people only knew me from Entertainment Tonight. But now with the internet, where you have the opportunity to go back and read Roger's reviews, and he's posted his whole inventory online, you see what a wonderful writer he was. Yeah. Just a terrific writer with a highly individual voice. Yeah. Who managed to personalize film reviewing. Uh, he, he has all the attributes of a great critic, but, but on top of that, he integrates his life, his point of view, his experiences. Mm-hmm. It's a very tough thing to do, mm-hmm. but uh, you, you know, who's writing that review. Yeah. You know who that guy is. Oh, he definitely had a, a point of view. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in terms of, uh, you, you know, where do you think, you know, what, what is the difference then? Because it seems like a lot of people take jobs uh, you know, on television and on the internet, just to sort of you know, there's a, there's a hackneyed quality to a, a a kind of encapsulation of a film. There's a very big difference between someone who sits there and just goes, "This happened, this happened, uh, I thought this was good," and somebody who draws from from what you're calling experience and yeah. stuff. It, it's very hard to sort out, but it, it seems like there's a lot of you know, almost uh, meaningless voices out there about film. Well, you said that, and uh, <laughs> and. And I won't. I won't strongly disagree. There used to be more meaningless voices, but there are fewer uh, fewer people who are putting critics on the air now. Uh-huh. Very few, in fact. Why and, is that? Uh, because people don't. Because we're in the age of YouTube. Everybody's a critic. Everybody's a critic. Mm-hmm. You know. And uh, when people talk about Rotten Tomatoes, Rotten Tomatoes is a fun idea that works. But I tell, tell That's people- That's crowdsourced, right? Uh, uh, well, no, half crowdsourced and half critic sourced. Yeah, because I don't go to any of them. I just listen to people I respect. But but the point is, like, every tom- every tomato represents a critic. Uh-huh. If you if you fire all the critics, there won't be any tomatoes left. Uh-huh. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes is an aggregate. Uh-huh. It's an aggregate of critical reviews. Okay. But, you know, it's a, it's a, it's like saying you're in the buggy whip business. It's, it doesn't have a, a bright future right now. Because everybody is content to spout their own opinions. Were you ever approached by studios to to carry water? No. And uh, amazingly, when I came out here uh, to work for E.T., within a year, we moved onto the Paramount Pictures lot. I was a movie critic 
at a movie studio. I worked in the middle of a movie studio. Uh-huh. And no one ever tried to bribe me or persuade me or strong arm me. Uh-huh. Never, ever. I mean, they could buy me a Coke. Wouldn't yeah. kill him, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, no, I never, I never had any any issues with that, which I'm very happy about. Hey, okay, so I I, I want to talk about the when I read a lot of that that sort of high minded intellectual criticism when I was in college, I really didn't know you know who who it was really for. Mm-hmm. Like it seemed to be an academic exercise yeah. for people who were who were who were. I, I don't even. I imagine it might have inspired some artists, and it might have you know gave people a richer or deeper understanding of film. But it was still it was still speculative, and it was still sort of invented, and it, and it seemed to be an academic uh, uh, pursuit. But you know what what we were just talking about in terms of you, you know what is criticism for? I know. Well, for some people, it's uh, just a consumer guide. Okay. Should I go? Should I not go? Right. That's all people want. A lot of people want from so-called film criticism, which is not really criticism. Right. It's, just, it's, it's a superficial review, and, th- and that's fine. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. It's right. valid. Yeah. I- as far as it goes. Yeah. But I don't want to say to somebody, don't go to see this movie. Yeah. I'd rather say, look, here's what the movie is. Here's what I thought of it. If you if you like Johnny Depp, if you find him interesting as an actor, you should go and see this movie. Right. Don't let me stop you from seeing this movie. Right. That's not my job. Right. Well, that I mean, and I, I think that's fair, yeah. and I think it, it, at least you say like, eh. But you know, if you yeah, that's a, you, to make your own choice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but make make make, it, make an informed choice. Sure, make a smart choice, but make a choice on your own. Yeah, and it, it, and it does become a financial choice at this point. In time. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> you know, the other thing that I've always uh, now I'm and I'm going to ask you as a historian because I have this idea in my head that not unlike. The, the archetypes of Commedia della Arte, that, that film has certain roles to fill that have been there since the beginning of film. Is, do you see that as possible? That there's a certain type of movie star that, that fills the James Dean hole, that fills the Cary Grant hole, that, fill, <laughs> that there are these, you know, these, these types of leading men, these types of character actors, these types of leading women that sort of repeat themselves throughout the history of film. Yeah, I think that's true to a very real degree. I mean, we w- the world seems to always want an action star. Uh-huh. You know, and sure. and and uh, Stallone and Schwarzenegger are still trying to do it. Right. Because people will still pay money to see them. But but where does that go back to? Douglas Fairbanks? Yeah. It does, right? Sure. And then when he you- he really was the first action star and he did most of his own stunts to boot. And then when you go back to, you know, the clown, you know, you have a, a wide array of different types of clowns. Different that sort types of, of humor, role. exactly. And then when you have, like, you know, the, the sex pot, you go back to Rudy Valentino or, or some right. sort of version of that. Right. Or, uh, that sex pot is used for women, but, you know, well, the, but the Cla- sexy... Clara Bow was a very sexy woman. Well, yeah, place, and, yeah. And, and then there's also the, you know, the, the, the women with sort of uh, brass and, and, and yep. different... But it just seems to me that, that they're, they're always sort of moving around a very familiar configuration that's, that's existed throughout the history of cinema right just as people primarily still go to the movies for escape mm-hmm. it's always been the case it's still the case and of course the, the the problem that hollywood's having now is that fewer and fewer people seem to be going to the movies for something other than escape uh-huh. and it's hard to sell them a serious movie or a serious-minded movie which is why so many people are being so many writers and directors and performers are being drawn to cable TV where they can do some serious work. Wow, there's some great stuff going on. Exactly. And 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 they're stealing movies thunder because movies have allowed them to steal their thunder. What, and what, you have to turn to the indie films and the foreign language films and even the documentaries to get stimulating entertainment in a theater. Provocative. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in each era cuz you know, I'm curious about 
how this evolves. And with somebody like yourself, you know, who's had this passion of movies, for movies, going back to the beginning of movies, and 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 you dedicated, you know, the first part of your life towards you know keeping the spirit of those movies alive. You know, what are the movies from each era for you that that never that never stop giving? Oh gosh, well, my all-time favorite movie is Casablanca. Why? Which, which never? It's a it's a perfect Hollywood movie. Okay, perfect. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Great storytelling that embraces suspense topicality romance mm -hmm. humor uh and uh and drama i mean all the ingredients in this one film seamlessly woven together and politics to a certain degree uh, very much politics and and as and a point of view global politics it yeah. has a point of view uh -huh. and uh and made by a master craftsman michael curtis from a great screenplay uh and every part in that film is perfectly cast not just the the lead actors who we know are great, mm -hmm. and, and the supporting actors like Sidney Greenstreet and Peter Lorre, Sydney we know Greenstreet. we know are great. Yeah. But every face, every person who has just a line, a bit in that film is a colorful face, an yeah. interesting face. Rick, help me, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> you have to roll the arm more, Rick. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, just you know, it's it's a wonderful film, and I never do tire of it. Uh -huh. I always see something I didn't notice before. Okay, so let's go up twenty years. Like, like let's let's take it to the. Well, I mean, again, again, when you when you get to that, what they now call the Silver Age, you know, the late sixties into the early seventies. I mean, I remember seeing Bonnie and Clyde when it was new. Uh -huh. uh, just you know, knocked knocked you off your feet. Why? Because you, like you it's so weird because you'd never seen the the romance and the violence and yes. the antihero. Yes, all in one thing. All in one thing, and told with such dynamism. Uh huh. I mean, you know, it was it was a really it was a I think it's not unfair to say a revolutionary movie. Well, sure. And the same year, The Graduate. Uh huh. It's you great. know, yeah. revolutionary. Yeah. Revolutionary American film. Uh huh. And uh, so those films had a deep impact on me. Uh, and then you know, and then you move into the seventies where we're talking about Altman and Coppola and L Lucas and uh, Michael Ritchie and uh, Hal so Ashby. many Hal Ashby. Uh, the, the landlord. Last, the, the landlord's a film I'm crazy about. I don't know that one. Oh, that was Hal Ashby's first film as a director. Oh, I got because I love uh, the last detail. Well, that's a great film. Wow. I mean, there's so many great films of that period. And again, I was lucky. I got to hear some of them speak in person. You know, when they were you know out promoting their films, got to interview some of them. Uh, you and, a Peckinpah guy? Uh, yeah, I am a Peckinpah guy. Uh, I'm not a Peckinpah. I'm not a rabid Peckinpah fan. There's about five but, the, there that, you know. That but, were, you know, you look at the Wild Bunch. Wow. It's like, uh, wow was right. Yeah. You know, and I love Westerns. I, I'm a, I, John Ford is just about my favorite director. Sure. And, you, and, and uh, but I love the Wild Bunch. The I Wild Bunch it. is great. And, uh, and uh, you know, Straw Dogs and. Uh, yeah, and The Getaway is yeah, pretty potent. Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia is one of the most, there's a weirdest fucking movie. Mm -hmm. it, what a bizarre movie that is. <laughs> he's, he's talking to that head. Yeah, you know, <laughs> in the car. Yeah, well, he was a wild guy. Yeah, um, Woody Allen. Love Woody Allen. Crimes and Misdemeanors, I think, is one of the greatest movies ever. Well, you know, I, I again, I have to explain to people that I remember Woody Allen as a stand-up comic. 
You saw him. That's when I, not in person, unfortunately, mm -hmm. but I saw him. He did a lot of TV work, mm -hmm. a lot of TV appearances, guest shots. He was on What's My Line as a panelist. You know, he sure. did all sorts of television. Well, that was, I thought that that documentary about him was very revealing. Yeah, I, done just, by a friend of mine, Bob White. But just in terms of just how calculating he is, how ambitious he is, how much of his shit he has together, and that how contrary to the, in a lot of ways, to the character yeah. of Woody Allen he is. And by the way, you know, John Turturro's film, Fading Gigolo, uh -huh. with a part tailor-made for Woody Allen, which he helped shape with Torturo. And he gives the most sublime comedy performance in it. Fading Gigolo is a really good movie. And Torturo's great in it, too. He wrote it for himself and then tailored this part for Woody Allen. And Woody did it. Uh, Woody did it. And, and the great story behind it, how they have the same barber. <laughs> Torturo said to his barber, would you be willing to mention to Woody Allen that I'm thinking of putting him in a movie? Would he be interested? And he did. Oh, that's hilarious. And that's how they got together. That's more a Hollywood story than a New York story, but it happened in New York. Uh-huh. And uh, it's a, uh, it, it, he's so good in it. Uh-huh. He's just so good. And I've always loved him as a comedic performer. So even though uh, a couple of his most recent films where he's been on camera, the films maybe haven't been great. I just love him spouting one-liners. He's still got it. Sure. He's still got it, 100%. Yeah. yeah. And what do you, like the new batch of directors, did you, what did you think of Spike Jonze's movie? The, uh, the... I was not crazy about her. Yeah. I like a lot of Spike Jonze's work. Adaptation, I think, is a brilliant He's movie. He's got a hell of a feel for a camera, man. Yes, he does. It's like, yes, it's he like, does. Like, I've never seen anything like and that. And you know, even where the wild things are. Not that car accident movie. adaptation. Oh, I'll never forget that scene as I, long as I live. I don't know how the hell. I think did. about that scene a little too often. Yeah. <laughs> as I'm backing out of a Where driveway. the wild things are. That was, a, I think people miss, I mean, that's really an art film. It is an art film. Yeah. And not, again, a flawed movie. Right. But with some wonderful, beautiful, heartfelt stuff in it. David O. Russell. Uh, uh, I like a lot of his stuff too. He's another one. Like where the hell? You know, didn't like the new one so much. Oh, which one? Uh, American Hustle. I, I, didn't, was, I didn't either. I, I thought it was a little flat. I wasn't sure what he was it trying was to a do. Lot of, it was like seeing a, a band with a lot of great soloists. Well, it seemed to me what, ensemble, you know. what he was trying to do was create one of the... There was a period in the 70s where they did comedies that you know were, were uh, uh, like gritty. Like, you know, if you look at movies like Freebie and the Bean or, or, or stuff like that where, you know, people are actually getting killed in comedies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, it seemed like that was sort of the tone he was playing with, but yeah. there didn't seem to be anything really at no. stake. Silver Linings Playbook, wonderful. Genius. Wonderful and and the fighter too. And the fighter too. That yes. he's got that. He, Absolutely. He, the, the, but I like I like his early work. I like spanking the monkey. Great. Three uh, Kings is a masterpiece. Three Kings, you know, really good stuff. Unbelievable. Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, uh, at times, uh, mind blowingly brilliant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, Boogie Nights, one of the great American films, I think. Uh -huh. Right up there with Pulp Fiction. You yeah, know? I mean, Tarantino. Just, just, you know, uh, a great, great film. Uh huh. And and. Uh, I didn't love everything about the master, but boy, I couldn't take my eyes off the screen. Right. You know? Yeah. And so, I mean, again, even even if a film may not be, you know, 100% perfect, if it holds me and grabs me and shows me things I haven't seen before. Yeah. Yeah, I'm there. I'm some, things, some films demand you to reckon with them, even if you don't get it. Yeah. Like the Coen brothers, I mean, like those guys, you know, seem to be doing their own thing, and I and I think that the, obviously, and they're they they are hit hit and miss as well. But yeah, I've not seen a, a, a more consistent cinematic vision in, in in a long time. No, no, absolutely. Yeah. And yet, and yet, what was funny is I liked everything about Lewin Davis except the movie. 
Yeah. I mean, I love the, I love the look of the movie, the feel of the movie, the casting of the movie, uh-huh. uh, the the performances in the movie. Oscar Isaac was just extraordinary. Uh-huh. And and, and they're, they're, they they love faces, you know. They cast their their bit parts. So uh, not since Fellini, I think. Yeah. Somebody somebody who's that that, sure. that kind of fondness for oddball faces. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And they put them all in the, just the right parts. Uh, but the film just didn't do it for me. Uh-huh. I-, I admired it. You yeah. know, I can admire it without liking it. It felt a little flat. I couldn't tell if it was intentional or not because some of their movies require a few viewings. Yeah, and it seemed to me that it was sort of like a a very sort of brief uh, kind of picaresque journey through you know the changing of 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 music. Yeah, that like there there seemed to be the the, the John Goodman character like when yeah. when the, the, the when the Coens are so sparse. And, you know, when something feels flat and so, but yet so utterly intentional, you know, I have to read into it. And yeah. it seemed to me that well, that you know, was... Well, you, you know that there's not a pore and a frame in their film that isn't right. intentional. Yeah. So it just seemed to me that, you know, what was being driven there, you know, he was being driven across country by really the death of, of, of bebop and beatnik, yeah. you know, America. Yeah. That, you, you know, I, I kept trying to read stuff into it. Yeah, yeah. And it's I, very perceptive of you. And, and, I, and I think that, you know, their, their, their movies require that. Yeah. Uh, what about, um, who was I just going to bring up? Uh, uh, oh, uh, Alexander Payne. Love him. Yeah. He's Love got him. his own thing going too, huh? And he, he's a humanist. I mean, he's a satirist and a humanist. That's uh-huh. a rare combination. Uh-huh. That really is a rare combination. It's a tricky uh, business. And some people have criticized him for being too harsh on the people he supposedly celebrates mm-hmm. that he he ridicules them he ridicules the very midwesterners he supposedly you know venerates uh-huh. but that's what makes him so interesting and does citizen kane loom large with you yes it does it kind of has to or it does not because it has to because it does because uh-huh. it does and when i was a kid i was too young i didn't uh, like those kids i lectured i didn't get it either it took me time you know, you you, you you can't absorb certain things when you're 12 years old or 14 sure, and years it, old. And I think it's also one of those movies that, that continues to reveal itself as you get older. And, and again, I, and again, that's true. And and you relate to your from your own life experience in different ways. And then that's you, a, that's the real sign of a masterpiece. Is well, that sure. some, with, is something that grows with you? Yeah, and exactly. That, and as you revisit it, you 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 seek deeper wisdom. From Precisely it. so. Mm-hmm. And there are all f- you know uh, too few films that do that. Did you see the Italian film, The Great Beauty, Mm-mm. which uh, uh, was the Oscar uh, winner this year? Uh, a, a really moving film. That's kind of like a uh, a modern day update of uh, La Dolce Vita. Uh huh. Uh, by Paolo Sorrentino, a really moving film that works on several levels uh-huh. and and hard to describe actually as a movie, but uh, very beguiling. You liked it, yeah, very much. Uh, we very could probably much. do this all day, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, I tell you, man, it was great talking to you. Same Leonard. here. Uh, and, Same here. And I think we covered a lot. Do you? Well, I sure hope so. <laughs> I you think feel we good did. about it. Yes, I do. And thank you for bringing me the books. You're and uh, and thank you for your insight. I appreciate it. See, that was interesting. I like Leonard Maltin. We had a nice chat. And he left me a bunch of books. I have an entire library of Leonard Maltin material right now. All right, well, that's our show, folks. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF Pod needs. Uh, the comment section is later. No more. I thought about it. I waited out. It wasn't a community. It was barely used. I'm going to take away the platform for the 10 trolls and the five douchebags and the seven people that enjoy the show. I'm sorry to you people. 
Yeah, it's gone. It's gone. You can still use the Facebook. The reason I left that is because you can't be anonymous on that, you pussies. You know who I'm talking to. But anyways, wait, what am I doing? Why am I using that tone? It's the end of the show. Let's do end of the show tone. Go to WTFPod.com, which I just said. Get the app if you're new to the show. Get the free app upgrade. You can stream all 512, 15, however many episodes. And uh, get some merch. You can check my calendar, see where I'm going, get some just coffee. Get... Oh, my God. I'm so tired of my ears. Oh, my God. Can't I just let myself feel good? Can't I just let myself feel good? Is that what's happening? Is it? <sighs> Boomer lives! <laughs>